You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is going to be part six of the Gallipoli series. And oh my, what an episode it's going to be. I'm going to pick up where I left off at Anzac. There was a lot of movement, fighting, death, and confusion going on at Gallipoli during August of 1915. So there's much more to discuss. The chaos is peaking. Let me go over some admin notes. Um, Well, first of all, if you guys hear me sounding a little under the weather... It's just my sinuses, nothing to be alarmed about. The wind picked up here all week, and uh, it just turned into 90 degrees. Wind picked up, and it's just been doing a beating on my sinuses. So uh, if I sound under the weather, I don't. if I sound bad, I don't know. I apologize. There's just really not much I can do about that. In fact, the wind was so bad a couple nights ago. It blew over one of our massive palm trees and it uh, landed on the neighbor's roof. So we got to we got to deal with that. But um, all right. Last episode, I mentioned I made some audio changes. Not sure if you could tell from your end. But on this side, I noticed a big difference. Loving the new mic. Sound editing was much smoother. I'm happy with the way it's going so far. I haven't been doing my Great War recommendations on the past few episodes. Re- reason being... I shoot for the 45-minute recording mark. If I go over a few minutes, good. Go below a few, good. But but that's what I'm shooting for. So if I'm around that mark, I'll just close it out without the recommendations. Honestly, I don't get much feedback on the recommendations, so I'm really in the dark if the listeners like it or not. It's not the bread and butter of the show, so no big deal. And, um... Yeah, that's it for the Advent Notes. Short and sweet. So what am I drinking for this episode? Well, I was going to drink another bourbon, but you know what? I was in the mood for some red wine tonight. So I decided to combine the two. I got a red wine blend aged in bourbon barrels. And this one's by Cooper and Thief, Cellar Masters. And I'm almost positive I've had this before, and that's why it kind of stuck out to me. So let me see how this one is. I'm pretty sure I'm going to like it. Yep. I like it. I'm pretty, yeah, I think I've had this before. Really good. Very nice red wine. I don't know much about Cooper and Thieves wine. So just telling you what I'm drinking. Some red wine blend aged in bourbon barrels and cheers to that. On the next episode, I, uh, I'll get a proper drink going. Yeah, I was just really in the... haven't had red wine in a while. and It's what I felt like. So that's what I'm drinking. All right. Let me do some recapping from the last episode. The Australian 1st Division launched a diversionary attack onto Lone Pine. The key objective there was to get the focus of the Turks set on them. So that the left flank could hook around, take Hill 971 and Chinook Bear then proceed onto neck and chessboard with little to no resistance. Again, this was the plan. We know it didn't go down like that. The fighting at Lone Pine evolved into both sides pushing through these narrow trench systems, fighting in hand-to-hand style combat where bayonets became the preferred choice of weapon for skewering the enemy. 
Turkish reserves were brought up. The fighting intensified as hand bombs, or what we know today as grenades, were being lobbed from every direction of the trench systems. Anywhere a group of Aussies stood, came many bombs thrown their way. It turned into a horrific scene of mutilated bodies being piled up. By August 9th, the ground gain was in favor of the 1st Australian Division, but that ground gain was roughly only 100 yards. The left flanking columns, which would be hooking around, well, there's no other way to put it. They simply failed. Nobody achieved their objective. And this was blamed on the fact that they were moving at night under the cover of darkness. The men had little experience moving as a group at night, and even more importantly, it was over unknown terrain. They had no idea what laid ahead. They didn't even have reliable maps, and that's a problem when moving at night. But here's the thing, and I didn't go into this during the last episode, so I'll comment on it now. What other choice did they have? The only other choice they had was to move in the day. And if they would have done that, it would have been a complete slaughter. The Turks would have spotted them early and they would have had more more reserves waiting for them than they already had. It would have been a bloodbath for sure. This is why by World War II they created paratroopers to drop them in behind or onto enemy lines in the cover of darkness. But these poor saps that were tasked with taking Hill 971 and Chinook Bear under the cover of darkness were doomed for failure. They really didn't have any other option. So after this debacle, finally the commander of the NZNA division, Major General Alexander Godley, halted the men. Again, overall for that left flank, the mission was a complete failure. Alright, now let me start where I left off at Anzac. Actually, before I get back into August at Anzac, let me cover another topic that was taking its toll on the men at Gallipoli. A very important one. Aside from the fact that they could be killed at any time, this other topic is hovering right around the death mark for being that bad for the men. I'm talking sanitary conditions. Yes, you'd know how I love talking about poopy situations and the sanitary conditions the men had to endure during the Great War. A couple of episodes ago, I spoke about the men having prickly heat and how miserable that can be. I know the misery firsthand because I've had prickly heat several times and it really sucks. Again, it's like having dozens and dozens of needles poking at you nonstop. It's very uncomfortable. But these men had much more to worry about than prickly heat. They're, all, they're getting terribly sick. They're now being infected with dysentery and typhoid. And it all was brought on by unsanitary conditions. Look, we've all had bad days. Or a bad night where we might have drank too much or ate the wrong thing that gave us the poops which always leads to sitting on the crapper for hours on end with our head in our hands, wondering what demon has possessed your body. The symptoms for food poisoning or a hard night out is nothing compared to the symptoms from dysentery or typhoid, which can actually kill you. 
There's violent diarrhea along with stomach cramping, fever, nausea, vomiting, blood and mucus in your poop, which is really more like infected poopy water that resembles a sewer. There's also weakness and a headache along with other bad things. There's a book that was written by a man, a legend. His name was James Nicholas Rowe, or as some know him, Colonel Nick Rowe. The book is titled Five Years to Freedom, and it was published in 1971. I don't read a lot of modern military books, really nothing past the Second World War. Clearly, I like the older history. It's just what I prefer, except for this book. In fact, this book could be a contender for being among the top five greatest books I've ever read. And I read a lot more than just history. Nick Rowe was among the first group of U.S. soldiers to arrive on ground in Vietnam. In fact, he was there advising before the major forces arrived. On October 29, 1963, then First Lieutenant Nick Rowe, along with two other Americans, along with a group of civilian irregular defense fighters, actually called CIDGs, were ambushed. All the Americans were captured. Nick Rowe spent over 1,900 days as a prisoner of war, 1963 to 1968. He actually escaped the day he was going to be executed. He was actually being led out into the jungle to be shot that day. As the group of VC were moving him through an open terrain of the jungle, an American helicopter spotted them and whipped the bird around so the door gunner could do his thing. But something wasn't right. One of the crew members on the helicopter noticed that one of the men wearing the black VC pajama-like uniform had a full beard. Vietnamese don't have full beards. This was an American down there. It's, it's just, it's such an emotional read. I, I can't go any further about that. I strongly encourage you to read this book. There's so much more to the story. I got choked up reading it and that was probably close to 24 years ago. There's an underlying message about survival for both military and the human spirit. Humans can be put through a ringer, the most extreme horrible conditions you can think of, and some will find the mental strength to push through. But why am I bringing this up? Well, Five Years to Freedom obviously is about Rose's time in captivity, is written by himself. Among all the bad things he detailed about being a prisoner of war, dysentery was the one that almost broke him. He thought for sure this was the thing that was going to do him in. It was that bad. I could take my worst stomach episode and you would have to times that by 1000 to even get close to the suffering he endured from getting dysentery and malaria. Think about this. He was constantly beaten. He was tortured. Five years of being a prisoner of war and for him to describe dysentery as being one of the worst things he had to deal with, it well, tells you how bad it really must be. And yes, Nick Rowe's situa situation was much different than others. But for the men at Gallipoli, they too were in an extremely bad situation. 
it was getting so bad that they had to be rotated from the front line, not to, not to just rest, but to bathe themselves. And the only place to bathe themselves was the beach. So let's imagine this situation. Picture a bay or, or beach such as Anzac or Hellas. Worst case would be a bay because the water is really just settling right there. Now you have hundreds, no, thousands of men defecating, vomiting, bleeding, and bathing in the water all at once. The seawater itself in these areas became a biohazard. In fact, if some of the men didn't have dysentery or something else before entering that water, many surely got something after jumping in. <laughs> Think about it. That water is going in their mouths. Don't kid yourself. They were swimming and jumping in. Water got in their mouths. Who, who swims or gets submerged and water magically stays away from their mouth? That's why shared pools or public pools gross me out. You got all these nasty kids, even adults, urinating in the water. Who knows if they've bathed or when was the last time they bathed before jumping in the pool? There's pubes, there's hair. It, it's friggin' gross to me. I just, yeah. Ugh. And again, when you're doing swan dives and cannonballs, you're getting water in the mouth. Don't fool yourself. The sanitary conditions at Gallipoli were atrocious. And I'm not saying the Western Front was a better place to be. I would, wouldn't say that because it was absolute hell there. But at least when the men were rotated off the line, they had a much more sanitary place to rest in, unlike the men at the Dardanelles. I wanted to touch base on this subject to paint the picture of what these men had to endure on the, on the front lines and to the rear. This is what was taking place during this time. All right, I'm going back to August 6th, 1915 at Lone Pine. I talked about the main diversion on the last episode, which I recapped just a moment ago, but there were other attacks planned for and executed at Lone Pine, which I need to cover. At midnight on the 6th of August, the 6th Battalion from the 1st Australian Division launched an offensive onto German officer's trench. This was another strategic position at Anzac. And I'll have another picture on my Instagram and Facebook page with a map showing German officer's trench. It's just north of Lone Pine and west of Chessboard. The goal for the 6th Battalion was to eliminate any flanking attacks from the Turks coming from Neck and Chessboard by 0430 hours. Neck is kind of difficult to see on the map. It's, it's north of Chessboard and west of Baby 700. The men created tunnels before the attack and not to be confused with the tunnels that lead underground. Miners were active by now on the battlefield and they were also called tunnelers. Their job was to mine or create tunnels below ground, attacking the enemy from directly underneath by detonating mines. But for this sake, this was different. These tunnels were three to four feet wide, about seven feet deep dug by the men to get closer to the enemy lines. 
They also had a roof made out of earth that was around half a foot to maybe a foot in thickness. And just like the diversion I covered on the last episode, these tunnels would serve as the launching points. On the last episode, I also talked about the Aussies detonating some mines to uproot the earth, giving the men some cover. They did the same thing for the 6th Battalion, but these mines were meant to destroy a good portion of the Turkish front lines as well as demoralize them. Three mines were detonated, one at 2300, one at 2330, and the other at 2340 hours, just before the men launched at midnight. And it was important they didn't occupy the front lines of these tunnels because they were roughly only 20 to 30 yards from the Turkish lines. That's too close for comfort. By 11 p.m., the men were lined in the tunnels nervously awaiting the explosions from the mines so they could go over. The hand on the clock struck 11, which is 2300 military time, but nothing big happened. In fact, all they heard was a slight muffled rumble and a light tremor. The miners had dug too deep and the explosion was ineffective. In fact, all the first detonation did was wake the Turks up and they began retaliating by shelling the 6th Battalion. The men were now crouching down, huddling just to stay clear of the artillery raining down on them. 11.30 came and the next mine was detonated and this time with even less effect. This pissed the Turks off even more and now Steele's post became a magnet for incoming artillery shells. The third mine was detonated and it was the same story. The result of the mines detonating at Steele's post did only one thing. It pissed off the Turks like spraying a hornet's nest with water. It put them on alert. This is not how the Aussies wanted to start the day. Instead of the mines causing havoc, the Turkish artillery seemed to have done that job. As midnight struck, the men moved through the tunnels, but it was very slow and difficult because they had been taken a beating. One tunnel was completely destroyed and impassable. It was done for. And this is just to get into position to attack. The men had to find alternative routes. They were running around like chickens with their heads cut off. It was chaos. What should have taken 10 minutes was taking some of the men 30 to 60 minutes just to get into position. The element of surprise had definitely been crumbled up and tossed into the garbage. The whistle blew for the men to go over the top. It was the same story as heard many times before. As they did, they were greeted by a hailstorm of bullets coming from machine guns and rifles along with hand bombs being tossed at them. The 6th Battalion was dropped so fast it was almost as if they were standing in a pit of quicksand that quickly sucked them back down into the earth. Men were being hit as they attempted to get out of the tunnel, being flung backwards onto the rest of the men rushing to go over. Again, think about the size of these tunnels and the mess this created. This attack had just started and it was already a disaster. The men were facing German officers trench and mortar ridge to their front, Quinn's post to their left, and Johnston's jolly to their right. 
Each of these Turkish lines had machine guns in place, decimating the Aussies. Because the whole plan of the 1st Australian Division's success at Anzac, that began on the 6th of August, depended on each element of the plan succeeding, higher-ups knew how important it was for the 6th Battalion to take German officers' trench. If they didn't, this would leave neck and chessboard open to flanking fire when those boys moved up. I've spoken about the flaws in this plan on the past couple episodes and how the higher-ups had no problem sending wave after wave to complete the mission. Here's another example. You know, a major from the 6th Battalion telephoned Brigadier General John Forsyth explaining that the failure of the mines, the alerted enemy, the congested tunnels made the attack impossible. Forsyth's response was to make another attempt as soon as possible. And not just comfortable with leaving at that, he also rings up the commanding officer of the 6th, Colonel Brundell White. He tells White that the enemy trench must be taken and that he was to reorganize his men and make another attempt at once. I don't fault anybody for wanting to succeed or to achieve their objective. I do, however, fault them for creating a bad plan and willing to sacrifice a great number of soldiers facing an impossible task. We're basically sending the men to their graves without a fighting chance. But I mean, hell, this is a war and a new style of warfare at that. Clearly, the 6th Battalion commanders were in disbelief what had just happened and how quickly it happened. A captain who was behind the front lines with Colonel White couldn't believe what he was hearing. He had to see it for himself. He described it by saying the following. The scene in the tunnel I shall never forget. Men leaning against the walls in the darkness without a word. And what their thoughts must have been, God only knows. But they must have been a hundred times worse than mine. And I knew how hopeless was the job, with no chance of surprise in it. However, it had to be tried. I found Bennett in the forward firing line doing his best to reorganize his men, who were more or less stunned. The groans of the wounded still in the recesses, and the awful blackness and silence were enough to take the heart out of anyone. Bennett himself wanted to lead the first line in the new attack as he felt it his duty. I would not agree as I pointed out, it was his duty to feed with reinforcements the daring men who went out first. We eventually got the wounded and dying out, which I shall never forget as they nearly all had three or four wounds, but seldom a groan as they were pulled out of the recesses and along the bumpy dark tunnel floor. Captain Carl Jess, Headquarters, 2nd Australian Brigade. I think about this captain saying he had to go see for himself, but I imagine what really happened was some general or colonel told him to get his you-know-what down there and assist in any way possible. It's all hands on deck at this point. Major Bennett was in a tough spot with his men. He wasn't about to disobey direct orders, and he knew the men who were about to go over for the second attack faced inevitable doom. This was suicide. It took the men nearly two hours to clear out the dying and wounded from the trenches. The second wave was reorganized and ready to go back over. Actually, I shouldn't say ready. Ordered is more like it. I don't think anybody in those tunnels was jumping for joy to go over. They knew the Turks were ready and waiting, 
but they didn't have a choice. The men were going to give it their best. These were brave men. At 0353 hours, the time had come. The signal was given by Major Bennett, Bennett and his men went pouring over the tunnels into no man's land, desperately rushing to make the Turkish front line, which was only roughly 20 yards away from where they were. Major Bennett witnessed his men immediately being shredded by the Turkish machine guns. The men were dropping everywhere, and the very few that did make it to the enemy front line found themselves alone, surrounded by Turks. All that could be heard was a gang of soldiers teaming up to brutally kill the lone soldiers. Needless to say, those very few who did make it, you would have to imagine their deaths were in agony. The second assault attempt onto German officers' trench was a complete failure. But not because the men didn't give it their all. No, it failed because the task was an impossible one. At one point, the commanders were considering sending over the six for a third assault, but ultimately this was called off that morning. And there was skepticism if the six really did give it all they had, and that maybe another battalion would have fared better. I think that's complete BS. In my opinion, it wouldn't have mattered what battalion was put in those tunnels to go over. The plan had fallen apart. They lost the element of surprise. Any other unit would have suffered the same fate. And all this goes back to the plan as a whole and that each attack or assault depended on another group's success. It was like a, a domino effect. If one failed, the chance of others failing was good. You know, one fell and the rest started falling down in the line. But of course, as any commander would do, they would assess the situation and regroup. They had a mission and it was their job to see this mission through. General William Birdwood, with the help of his staff officer, Andrew Skeen, had to absorb what had just happened and how could they pivot the plan geared towards Neck, Chessboard, Dead Man's Ridge, and Quinn's Post. With the failure of the 6th Battalion, this left these areas open and prone to flanking attacks from the Turks once the men were seen approaching. These areas had to be secured beforehand. The New Zealanders were tasked with taking Battleship Hill and Baby 700 from the rear, but they were way behind schedule. Birdwood decided to move the 3rd Light Horse Brigade onto Neck and its surrounding areas. This new attack plan would consist of four waves, each having roughly around 150 men. The 8th Light Horse had the honors of going first. Birdwood ordered a pre-bombardment at 0400 hours, aiming for neck and chessboard, even though it was more for a show, because it had little effect as we've routinely seen in this campaign. Colonel White decided it would be better for him to lead the men from the front, which I do respect that, but... He now neglected to provide guidance to his junior officers and NCOs, which is always needed. Well, maybe not so much NCOs, but junior officers for sure. The first wave went over at 0430. Neck was to their front with the enemy front lines roughly 60 yards away. The Turks peered over the parapet with their rifles at the ready and machine gun teams in place. A soldier from the first wave described his experience he said the following. They were waiting ready for us and simply gave us a solid wall of lead. I was in the first line to advance and we did not get 10 yards. Everyone fell like lumps of meat. 
all your pals that had been with you for months and months, blown and shot out of all recognition. I got mine shortly after I got over the bank and it felt like a million ton hammer falling on my shoulder. I was awfully lucky as the bullet went in just below the shoulder blade by my throat and came out just a tiny way from my spine, low down on the back. It was simply murder. Sergeant Cliff Pinnock, 8th Light Horse, 3rd Light Horse Brigade. These types of scenes had become all too common for this campaign. I can't imagine having a bullet enter my shoulder blade next to my throat, then blowing out my lower back. And the size of the blowout had to have been about the size of your fist. It truly was a miracle this man survived such a wound. A shot like that can easily kill a man today, even with over 100 years of medical advancements on the battlefield. You know, the bullet is traveling by vital organs. Do you believe in guardian angels? I'm sure this man did after that event. In less than a minute, the whole first wave was stopped in their tracks. Many put down for good, including Colonel White and all his officers alongside him. The second wave went over two minutes after the first. Bullets were coming from their left, right, and center. It was the same story, except during the second wave, the Turkish temporarily ceased fire. And why did they do this? Well, so they could add salt to the wounds. They reached down, grabbed as many hand bombs as they could, and started tossing them into no man's land. There was no mercy. The bullets weren't enough for them. Now came the bombs being tossed everywhere. It was a miracle soldiers survived to tell the story. One later wrote about it, saying the following. It hurt for a moment, but I thought to myself, I am wounded and have a good excuse to retire. But finding it was nothing. I had to continue to lie there while the Turks from their trenches 10 yards away were throwing bombs onto the top of my ridge. How I escaped being killed, I don't know. The bombs are round like a cricket ball, and one rolled over my neck, bumped alongside my body, and burst a little lower down the hill. The bombs killed a lot of men that day. They make frightful, ghastly wounds. Trooper Alex Borthwick, 8th Light Horse, 3rd Light Horse Brigade. I don't think ghastly can begin to describe the horror. You know, a big problem sprang up for the Light Horse Brigade. When the first wave went over, a very unlucky soldier, unlucky not only for himself, but unlucky for the brigade, well, it was because he made it to the front line. Clearly, he was killed, but before he was, as he reached the trench, he waved a signal flag. Now, this signal flag was a signal they gave saying they had progressed into the enemy trench line. So at this point, the commanders watching from the rear seen the flag and assumed progress was being made. The 10th Light Horse was the third and fourth wave. And at this point, their CO, Colonel Noel Brazier, had a crystal clear picture of what had happened to the first and second waves. He rushed back to brigade headquarters explaining to the commanders that it was suicide to send any more waves over and to call off the rest. The commanders at headquarters said, we're not stopping nothing. Your men are going over because we can see the signal flag waving in the Turkish trench showing they had taken a portion of it. 
which of course is completely false, Brazier was ordered to have his men go over. If Colonel White from the 8th Light Horse would have stayed alive instead of charging, he would have been able to confirm alongside Brazier that in, indeed it was true the men were torn apart and they didn't hold the enemy line at neck. Again, I respect Colonel White's bravery to fight alongside his men, but a colonel is up there in rank for a reason, and his responsibility was to have command and control over his men. The third wave was sent over at 445, followed by the fourth at 515. It was another suicidal attack. Some of the men were warned by their sergeants that it was a hopeless task and advised them to immediately take cover or hit the ground as they went over the top. Many of them listened to this advice and upon leaving the trench and the, as the bullets were whipping everywhere, they dove and laid as flat as they could for cover. They laid as still as a corpse and didn't dare lift their head because if they did, that's what would have happened. The 8th Royal Welsh Fuselers were ordered up for a follow attack on neck through Russell's Top and Pope's Hill at 0510 hours. Of course, when you hear from the, the term follow-up attack, you'll know that it was dependent on the success of the 3rd Light Horse Brigade. Problem for the 8th was that the 3rd never told them to halt their follow-up because there was no successful wave on the neck. The Turks' response to the 8th Fuselers' attack was to lob hand bombs after hand bombs down the steep slopes as they got near. The bombs were extremely effective and the men were ordered to abandon. Overall, getting the men into neck on August 7th was a no-go. Straightforward. Over at Pope's Hill, south of Neck, the first light horse were launching their attack onto Dead Man's Ridge at 0330. They would climb up Waterfall Goalie to be in position to launch an assault at 0430. Initially, they had some success. As the men climbed up the goalie, the Turks began tossing bombs. With these turds exploding in all direction, it was impossible for the men to organize themselves at the top, so they didn't stop. All they could do was continue to charge forward. They successfully managed to take the first two lines, follow, followed up by taking a third. As daylight started to break through, the men advancing, moving towards the Turkish Crescent Trench. As the landscape became more visible, they noticed the Turks laying half out the trench in position waiting for them. The machine guns came alive with effective fire. The men were immediately ordered to hit the ground as the bullets whizzed past and bombs landing all around them. I'll always be in awe of the resilience these men showed under such conditions. Many would spring back up out of desperation and charge forward. And groups of them made it into the heavily defended trenches. A commander from the Turkish 9th Division wrote about this, saying the following. Notwithstanding the great losses they suffered, eight or ten of their men managed to penetrate a covered area of our trench. All the same very few of them and those who came to their aid managed to escape, with the remainder being toppled. The battle ended at 0700, and as it was a very violent battle, 
we suffered 52 dead and 166 wounded. I submit also the information that the artillery fire on our trenches following the repulse of the enemy resulted in the partial destruction of our trenches and caused most of our casualties. Major Hallis Bay, 3rd Battalion, 27th Regiment, 9th Division, 5th Army. You have to imagine that some of these Aussies and groups looked at each other at this point and said, what else do we have to lose? Either we lay here and die, or we can go kill as many as we can. Let's give them a fight. And like Hallis Bay described, they did just that. The second light horse was tasked with charging chessboard. The first wave was immediately repelled by the machine guns in place directly to their front and also from German officers' trench at Dead Man's Ridge. The commander had the sense to save his men and held back any further attacks. This is another great example of that domino effect. One portion falls and the dominoes just start falling in suit. All the attacks launched by the 3rd Light Horse Brigade failed. The men displayed a tremendous amount of courage, but sometimes courage is no match for machine guns. The 8th and 10th Light Horse clearly suffered the most losses as each of the four waves were sent over. They took 372 casualties, 234 of those were kills, in just one morning. When we think about a mass casualty situation today, we think of a well-synchronized system of responders coming onto the scene and providing aid. First responders, medics, etc. They trained for these situations involving a high number of casualties, especially after 9-11. And to be honest, this wasn't the first war to experience mass casualties. Take, for instance, the Civil War. There were numerous battles where mass casualties piled up. And history tells it was quite gruesome. But what made Gallipoli just a little different was the terrain and available aid. You think about getting the wounded down from the gullies, ravines, and other treacherous areas. They mass on the beach. Some are put onto medical ships. Others are treated right there. Blood and gore is everywhere. Many ended up dying. Then you have the sanitary conditions I spoke about earlier. And, atop, and on top of that, they really were shorthanded on medics, supplies, sterile supplies, nurses, and doctors. If you think about what we consider as a busy, stressful life, I know I'm guilty of thinking I have one. Imagine being a surgeon or doctor at the beachhead of Gallipoli or on board one of these hospital ships. They were working around the clock since April 25th, 1915. That's the type of stress that takes years off your life. And if you were seriously wounded during these battles, this is the last place you wanted to be. I'm going to compare this again to the Western Front. And by no means is the Western Front during the Great War a good place to be because it wasn't. It, it was complete hell. However, often a wounded soldier, if not serious enough, you know, he had a chance of living, he would often end up in a hospital-like scenario with nurses caring for him. Well, at Gallipoli, this didn't exist. There was no clean sheets or clean beds. And again, many of the badly wounded who were shipped out died during the journey. It was just a really bad scene. 
On August 8th, a renewed attack was aimed at Chinook Bear by the Wellington Battalion, supported by the 7th. I, would I say this? I don't know. I'm going to butcher it. I think it just sounds like Worcestershire sauce, if I even say that right. They were supported by the 7th Gloucestershires and the 8th Welsh Regiment. <laughs> that word just throws me off. The objective was to make a breakthrough before Turkish reserves arrived. British artillery and machine guns opened up at 0330 hours. After the artillery and guns ceased firing onto Chinook Bear, the Wellingtons with fixed bayonets rushed to the top. They had been warned that fierce opposition would be met, but to their surprise, they received no resistance. It appeared that the Shellian guns forced the Turks to pull back. After getting to the top, they began consolidating their position. They fortified the trench with their entrenching tools. They, they did this for about a good hour. You know, there's nothing like being in a battle at Gallipoli and having to pull hard labor duty. Behind them, the Gloucestershires and the Welsh Regiment had another story to tell. The Turks had positioned some of their men in an enfilading position that were aimed right at them. The men were stopped in their tracks. After the Turks opened up, the firing and artillery worked its way to the Wellingtons, which overall forced them to pull back. All that digging for nothing, they again found themselves in a shallow trench system dangerously exposed. In all, this too was a failure and a costly one. The Wellingtons made up of roughly around 760 men, only seven unwounded remained the night of August 8th. The hand bombs seemed to do the most damage. Another problem for this group was that the Turkish reserves were on the way. They were close by. And once they arrived, regrouping the men to take a hill such as Chinook Bear would be impossible, and the men knew this. Meanwhile, the 29th Indian Brigade had morphed into a soupy sandwich. The men were scattered all around below Hill Q. Orders were not being passed along. Men didn't know where they were. Men were sleeping on the job. Everyone there seemed confused. A second lieutenant from the 14th Sikhs, tasked with relaying orders to his scattered companies, described it saying the following. I took an armed orderly with me and set out across Agildare in almost pitch darkness. It was about 2 a.m. It took me about an hour and a half to find Mechlin, only about a half a mile away through thick shrub and dried up riverbeds. I was challenged now and again, but no one could tell me where he was. I was in a fever. Here I was, with very urgent orders, and I could not find the man whom they were intended. At half past three, I stumbled upon him, fast asleep. I went through the orders with him. Neither he nor I knew where Hill Q was. It was not marked as such on the map, nor had it been pointed out to us. All we did know was that within three quarters of an hour or so, we were to capture it. It was still dark and the men were fast asleep. 2nd Lieutenant Reginald Savory, 14th Sikhs, 29th Indian Brigade. The whole British plan up to now seemed to crumble apart from the start, but the Turks, that was a different story for them. They had suffered some serious losses, 
but they still had plenty of men in reserve. And these reserves were on the move and were moving with a sense of urgency. By this time, the reserve elements from the 4th, 8th, and 9th Divisions had reached Anzac, and the 7th and 12th Divisions were on their way to Suvla. And there was one man who would take control of all the men spread about, ready to defend the new threats now facing Sari Bear Heights and Suvla. His name you already know. It's Mustafa Kamal, and he was set on making his mark in the history books. He contacted Lehman von Sanders, chief of staff, and told him there was no other course remaining but to put all available troops under his command. But the British weren't folding yet. By the evening of August 8th, commanders and NCOs were reorganizing the troops to have another go at it. Hill 971 was a no-go. Turkish reserves had closed that area off. The focus was to have the scattered 29th Indian Brigade to take Kill Q. Mixed battalions from the 13th Division would attack the northern sector of Chinook Bear. The New Zealand Brigade would consolidate at the southern sector of Chinook Bear, then would proceed onto Battleship Hill. In the early morning hours on August 9th, an artillery bombardment commenced before the men were launched at 0515 hours. Too many times we've heard how plans immediately fell apart right out the gate. This isn't what the British troops needed at this point, but this is what they got. Right from the start, the 13th Division was completely lost and were nowhere near where they were supposed to be by the time 0515 came. Here comes the domino effect again. This caused the New Zealand Brigade to cancel their attack. Now, the only hope for success laid in the hands of the 1-6th Gurkha Rifles from the 29th India Brigade, supported by companies from the 6th South Lincolnshires. The element that played in favor for the Gurkhas was the artillery bombardment. The men were just below Hill Q and they could see the destruction taking place. The earth was rumbling as the Turkish trenches were being obliterated. Finally, some luck played in their favor. A major getting ready to lead his men described it saying the following. I had only 15 minutes left. The roar of the artillery preparation was enormous. The hill was almost leaping underneath. I recognized that if we flew up the hill the moment it stopped, we ought to get to the top. I had my watch out, 5.15. I never saw such artillery preparation. The trenches were being torn to pieces. The accuracy was marvelous. And we were only just below. 5.18. It had not stopped, and I wondered if my watch was wrong. 5.20. Silence. I waited three minutes to be certain, great as the risk was. Then off we dashed, all hand in hand. A most perfect advance and a wonderful sight. At the top, we met the Turks. Le Marchand was down, a bayonet through the heart. I got one through the leg, and then, for about ten minutes, we fought hand to hand. We bit and fisted and used rifles and pistols as clubs. Blood was flying about like spray from a hair wash bottle. And then the Turks turned and fled, and I felt a proud man. The key of the whole peninsula was ours. Major Cecil Allenson, 1st of 6th Gurkha Rifles, 29th Indian Brigade. Imagine you have your rifle in hand, bayonet attached, you and the boys are waiting for that whistle. 
The hill you're about to take is being torn up by the artillery. There's explosions, fire, and bodies being thrown about. Then you rush the trench, and it's a full-on fight for 10 minutes hand-to-hand. And 10 minutes is a long time to fight. Try sparring for 10 minutes straight. Now imagine you're sparring for your life. Men are gouging eyeballs. They're kicking in the balls, biting. It's no holds barred. Anything goes when you're fighting for your life. It must have been an extremely brutal, violent scene for that 10 minutes. But their luck was about to run out. The men from the Gurkhas' testosterone was high. Their blood is Russian. Naturally, as it would be in a situation like this. Well, they start chasing after the Turks and now are on the other side of the hill. This is where the Navy and artillery were concentrating their fire now. So the Gurkhas walked right into their own bombardment. And it does some heavy damage, as you can imagine. An officer described seeing a soldier actually take an artillery piece to the head, took it clean off before exploding nearby. Death in an instant. And some of the commanders who survived this would ultimately blame the Navy, but it was standard procedure to lift the artillery to the rear of the line to block out reserves and to catch the fleeing. So who's really at fault here? You know, they could have just held the top of Hill Q and then coordinated a preceding attack just for the simple fact knowing artillery is just beyond the ridge. But it was too late for that. On August 10th, roughly around 2,000 soldiers made up with mixed units from different divisions and brigades occupied Rododendron Ridge and Chinook Bear. But it wouldn't last long. This is when Kamal launched a series of attacks from his reserves. They were like an army of ants coming over the ridge, swooping down, overwhelming the British. The men were driven back. The Turks only stopped because they too became exhausted. Chinook Bear was back under Turkish control. At the end of the four-day battle at Anzac, the British accomplished, well, really nothing. The Anzac Corps lost an estimated 12,500 soldiers, which was roughly around 33% of its fighting force. The division who suffered the worst was the 13th Division. They lost 5,500 men. This truly was a plan that was doomed from the start, but the men were still ordered to proceed knowing it was suicide. And as I'm getting ready to wrap this up, I want to go back to the casualty situation at Gallipoli on the beach and on the hospital ships. That by itself was a horror show. I'm going to end this with a couple quotes from a lieutenant who was on board a hospital ship called the HMHS Caledonia. He described it saying the following. We worked one and all until we could no longer tell what we were seeing or doing. Dressing, dressing, dressing. Hour and hour on end, all day and all night, picking out the cases where the dreaded gas gangrene had set in, where immediate and high amputation was only hope of saving life. Even the clean open decks stank with the horrid smell of gangrenous flesh, and the holds, dark, hot, and ill-ventilated, were just like cockpits of fleet in the days of Nelson. The operating room was a veritable stinking, bloody shambles 
where patients were brought up on a stretcher and left waiting for their predecessor to be taken down. Then rapidly chloroformed, placed on the table, a leg or arm whipped off in a couple of minutes by a circular incision. One sweep of the knife and the bone sawed through, the limb thrown into a basket with many others awaiting incineration. No sutures were, ne- were used, just a huge moist dressing applied to the stump. Then McCasey, bloody and perspiring, in the muggy tropical night, would await the next poor victim of German ambition, who, in his turn, would be rendered a maimed testimonial to his life's end. The brutality and savagery of war. Modern war? Perhaps. But does the limb shattered by a bullet look as brutal as the limb half cut through by a sword? Does the chest through which a half pound of jagged shell has plowed its way appear less brutal that pierced by a rapier or even a spear? Assuredly, since the days when men killed with club alone, no warfare has produced such savage wounds, such shattered wrecks. Once human bodies, as the war surgeon of today has to deal with. That lieutenant described the battles of Gallipoli being pure hell and not only for the men on the lines. These hospital ships would make runs back and forth to Alexandria, Egypt, so some of the soldiers could get better care. He went on to describe that, saying the following. The parson every night at midnight exactly would appear in surplice and cassock on the main deck, and there by the flickering light of a solitary candle lantern would read aloud the burial service. It was the most weird ceremony one could possibly imagine. Lying on the deck, bound tightly up in sailcloth, with a weight at the feet, anything from three to near a score of silent, motionless figures. Three placed at a time on the gangway board from the ship's bulwark, lying feet pointing seaward. The Union Jack spread over all three. The hundreds of dark figures watching from the decks, sailors and soldiers, silent and awed from once at the sight of the last rites of those chaps who so lately had been cheery and lusty comrades. The few words of the chaplain soon over. The Union Jack is whipped off the bodies by a sailor and three bells are heard in the engine room. The great engine stops their roar and the ship glides in the silent darkness. The board is elevated and with a swish, followed by a dull splash, those three join Britain's countless dead, deep down in the Aegean Sea, far from home and those who hope for their return. Once again, the chaplain reads over three more, again the splash, and so on, until it is over and the watchers disperse to the rest of their work. But in each brain, be it ever so dull, an impression must linger until their life's end. Lieutenant Norman King Wilson, HMHS Caledonia. All right, folks, I'm going to wrap this up right here. Remember, there's still the Suvla landings taking place during this time, and I'm going to jump right back into that on the next episode. Thank you for your continued support. Wishing you all the best. And until the next one, take care, everyone.